What do Americana, conspiracy theories, and print newspapers have in common? They're all trapped in the rebellious mind of Walter Kern. He unleashes on us in studio today to discuss his publication, County Highway, and how America needs to wake up. This is a trip you don't want to miss. I'm James Polis. Welcome to Zero Hour. Walter Kern is a master of the media universe, fiction writer, essayist, critic, the list goes on. His novels include Up in the Air and Thumbsucker, both of which were made into major motion pictures. His latest book is Blood Will Out, a memoir of sorts. He's also the co-host with journalist Matt Taibbi of the podcast America This Week. Welcome, Walter. Good to be here. All right, America is still here, last time I checked, but uh, how much longer have we got? Um, well... I, I, I think we've got longer than we think. It, we always have longer than we think. And the current version of America may be one that we don't want to last much longer, but I'm afraid it probably will. Um, I, I was telling somebody the other day, I've been listening to old Art Bell podcasts from the 1990s, a radio host who specialed in uh, specialized in apocalyptic themes. And uh, from about 1995 till 2000, it was a certainty of his that we were about to expire, either from you know terrible weather, uh, Y2K, uh, terrorism, etc. And you look back on it, and you hear real panic in the callers' uh, voices, real concern. Um, but the Mayan calendar didn't come to an end, and uh, Y2K didn't stop the modern clock. And it seems quaint. And I have a feeling that even our apocalyptic fears right now are going to seem quaint 10 years from now. So you're working on an Art Bell project, actually, I think. Yeah. I can, I, I can disclose this classified information. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, write, I'm writing a <laughs> screenplay about him, yeah. Okay, so you must be going through the archives. I mean, he was a big, a big radio guy at a time when a lot of Americans really just dug into the radio, late-night radio. Uh, and it was kind of this, like, uh, this release valve for all of the, the unconscious and half-conscious sort of fears and dreams of, of people on, on the listening end. I guess Alex Jones kind of taps into some of that now, but it was different back then. Uh, do you think that was ultimately bad? I mean, did, did, did we create an environment where Americans had unreasonable expectations of, um, of peace and happiness and, and orderly life? You mean, well, Art Bell didn't create expectations of No, but he was responding, life. right? He was this, this, yeah. this deep-seated sort of uh, 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 reservoir of, of fear uh, in response to this idea that, you know, well, the Dark Ages are over, uh, you know, war is, is more or less over, sometimes there's a thing that happens here or there, but, you know, we kind of got it figured out. Apocalypticism is maybe a luxury belief because it's the sort of nighttime version of daytime security. When you really think the world is gonna end, it's not something you wanna go around thinking about or being entertained by. But the chief Hollywood science fiction mode has been dystopianism for, what, 30, 40 years now. Um, and on that show, six hours a night, five hours a night, people were talking about superstorms, tsunamis, earthquake clusters, solar, uh, solar events of mysterious uh, power, and uh, computer viruses, ancient curses, and Nostradamus uh, predictions. So uh, the History Channel. Yeah, it was like the History Channel. So. I, there's something, you know, there's something narcissistic about believing that yours is the generation in which it will all end. You exist at the climax of history. And I think in a weird way, the, 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 the corollary of the social justice people who think they finally got the answer to human suffering. They finally got the answer to injustice. They finally decoded uh, unfairness and oppression. And they exist at the beginning of utopia. The sort of flip side of that is to think we're on the verge of, you know, the return of the savior or maybe the plunge into everlasting darkness. Um, but 
it's a relief to think about that because real life involves going to work and, you know, pushing the ball, the, the, the Sisyphus boulder up the hill and watching it roll down again. And the idea that there's going to be, you know, what we call them Minnesota in the winter, a snow day, a, a terrible ultimate snow day in which we'll all be excused from school forever is, I think, a, a way of relaxing the mind during just periods of unremitting sort of tension and, you know, tedium. Yeah. At the same time, there's a real argument to me made that the world may end like in three months or three days from now. Well, you can never be too sure, can you? I'm taking the I'm taking the I'm taking the forty thousand foot view uh, because I've been listening to those old broadcasts, and it is ironic to hear people you know who who lived to old age and died naturally worried about you know whatever it might be a flying saucer invasion, but. I'd say that, uh, you know, if, if we're going to be setting the apocalypse clock, it's probably a little nearer to midnight than it was then. Yeah, it's later than you think. I'm, I'm reminded of a story I heard about a guy who talks to a, <clears throat> talks to a monk, says, you know, well, what's, what's life like on the monastery? Like, how do, what, are, what are you doing up there? And <clears throat> the monk responded, well, basically, you're, you force yourself to do things that you don't want to do, and you force yourself to not do things that you do want to do, and that's monastic life. Um, I think it was, uh, I've been quoting Walter uh, Walker Percy a lot these okay, days. Okay, cool. Um, and uh, his line about how, you know, people weren't afraid that the bomb was going to fall. They were afraid that the bomb was never going to fall. Right. And just kind of like that experience of like that kind of everyday little mini, mini apocalypse. Is this all there is? Um, I wonder if, you know, we're now in a situation where the, the powers that be are kind of toying with this like faux apocalypse thing where it's like, well, you can have a little bit as a treat or whatever the opposite of that is, you know, a little, you get COVID sort of, ah, oh, it's the end of the world. And then uh, well, kind, of, well, uh, kind of trickles uh, off. And then we wait for the next one. Two winters ago, or I guess it was two, when Biden confidently predicted that it was going to be a winter of severe illness and death. A dark winter. Uh, yeah, a dark winter. Um, I think a lot of people got pretty excited, um, especially since they thought the death was going to happen to people unlike them, you know, the unvaccinated or whatever the scapegoat of that winner was um, that that that's a perennial theme with these apocalyptic predictions that it won't maybe be you who who perishes. It'll be all the bad people. Um, you think we're done with this covid business? Oh, man. Well, the the uptake on the latest round of vaccines seems to be very low. Uh, I heard two percent. Yeah, it's it's like nothing. I mean, how can you even have a product that only has 2% uptake? I mean, are, are they standing around in Walgreens with a bullhorn? Please come in. Um, it's not even worth keeping the little mini clinics open. The greeters just jump out. Aha! Now you're, now you're at 3%. The truth is, I wouldn't even know where to get one right now. No. Um, but a couple of years ago, driving down the road in Montana, where I live, you'd see the, you know, we have these sort of cheap casino gas station complexes out in rural areas where you can play Keno and 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 they were offering uh vaccines in these places another style of gambling yeah you could sit at the Keno machine with your uh, cheap beer and get vaccinated while you were doing it and you know chain smoking with one hand yeah exactly chain smoking with one hand and getting vaccinated with the other but uh are we done with COVID I think the people are done with COVID uh I, I think Pfizer and Moderna would like a couple other rounds if possible. But um, I know that when anybody gets a cold now, uh, they aren't running to get tested, uh, whereas a year ago they were. Um, so maybe it'll just fade back into the respiratory virus bouquet that we're used to. Um, what if you threw a pandemic and nobody came? It would be great because... In my opinion, too many people came last time. Yeah. Um, and uh, it would be nice as a test to see if we uh, are immune to panics for them to try it again and have people shrug and move on. Yeah, where's the panic vaccine? Yeah. Well, I mean, there, a couple of weeks ago, you know, talking about conspiracy theories, remember when they ran the, uh, uh, the test of the emergency broadcast system? Right. I was in an airport. I was in a crowded airport 
And uh, I'd been told that, I love how they didn't give us an exact time for when it would uh, go off. It wouldn't be a test if it was. Right, it was, it, they gave us a two hour window. It was like delivering a mattress, you know, be home between the hours of whatever and ever. <laughs> and, and so sometime between 11 and 1, 11 a.m. and 1 p.m., your, your phone's gonna go off. And uh, I'm in the airport and I'd sort of forgotten to be concerned about it. Not that it was a scary prospect, but all of a sudden they started going off and sort of symphonic, buzzing, annoying, you know, dystopian way. Um, and I thought, I, and I'd forgotten it was happening. And I thought, what's going on? Because everybody's phone sounds different. But I think they had a, a uniform tone for this thing. And I was like, what is this psychological training all about? Why are they doing this now? Is there a war coming or something? Well, yes, there was. There was. <laughs> Imagine <laughs> you know, that. You know, um, <clears throat> and, and, and this is where conspiracy theories come from. They come from sort of folk logic. Uh, and when they are affirmed, it, it, it's, it's uh, a little disturbing because I think everybody was going, why are they doing this now? Are they expecting a nuclear exchange over you know, the Ukraine war? Or is there uh, another pandemic brewing? And lo and behold, but it's all a coincidence. Of course. I think this folk logic thing is really important. And <clears throat> you know, not to pretend that this is like, uh, the people always know best, but um, sometimes it can go, hilariously disastrously wrong but oftentimes you can see things that you know if if you just hide in your room and try to understand what's going on you might miss and the elites are missing it they have their own form of logic that can go horribly wrong or sometimes work okay um but it's you know folk logic's been around for a long time it's myth and then right up through the common sense era maybe that's come to an end but it's still it's still in effect so you know i mean just just look at the way that that joe biden is being presented to the people right now and then you think about like how, what, when it comes to something like folk logic, how are our ordinary Americans processing the way that this like disintegrating figure is being paraded in front of them with what seems like increasing sort of nakedness or, you know, just the vulnerability, the patheticness of this, this creature that's being presented to them. What do you make of that? Well, if I'm going to put on my folk logic, Eastern European peasant hat, yeah. I'd say that um, for some reason, they want us to feel insecure. Um, for some reason, uh, what should be a great assurance seeing a strong leader is being replaced with seeing someone who, you know, can barely get to the next syllable and who looks terrible and who is quavering and puts, you know, puts the fear of God in no one, especially our enemies. And in some ways it's destabilizing. Uh, I mean, it, it, whether it's on purpose or not, see, that's the big problem with conspiracy theories. They, they bog down in the, in the question of intentionality. Um, you know, do they mean to be doing this or, or, or not? And I just say, what are they doing and whether they mean to be doing it or not is a question for later. And what they are doing, whatever they intend to be doing is scaring people. Uh, when, when you are being told on the one hand that you're about to be at war on two fronts, uh, you know, in major conflicts with one nuclear power and then maybe Iran, a pseudo semi-nuclear power, and you get a guy on a plane who has his secretary of state peering out from a bathroom stall while he you know, looks at you with a plastic face and says things that don't make any sense, you are being destabilized. It's, it's almost winter now, and it looks like it's going to be a dark winter of sorts. How much longer can, can Biden get out of bed and, and do this every day, do you think? Well, I predicted that he wouldn't make it to the actual election, and so I've been wrong many times on, on this guy's stamina though i don't know if it's stamina that's in question i mean it's just the ability to keep a figure in front of the camera 
uh, and you know, somewhat well lit because nothing he's saying is making any sense anymore. I saw a speech last night from the Oval Office. Usually, usually Oval Office speeches are, you know, um, quite important, somber, and and substantial. Yeah, ones for the vault for the history books. Events, yes. And and this one just had. I mean, if it was a newspaper article, it would be full of typos. Uh, it was typo after typo, um, Islamic phobia, uh, and you realize none of these words are registering on the brain that is allegedly producing them. Um, and uh, so he can probably go on forever. I mean, we've lowered our standards to the point where all he has to do is sit up, right? I figure uh, they got six or seven of the, of, of the Joe Biden model just kind of in cold storage somewhere. And every time one looks like it's about to drop dead, they just wheel the next one out and uh, it's sort of progressively degenerating. Well, so there you have another conspiracy theory. The way a lot of people deal with this is going, um, he's not real. Yeah. It's somebody wearing a mask. Uh, he's on drugs. Uh, somehow this is a, a matter of staging, not reality. And that's how people cope with the, the, the paradox or the terrifying contradiction of the leader of the most powerful country in the world being apparently uh, non-functional. I mean, when my father died of ALS a day before he passed away, he was far more coherent than our president. That's uh, incredible. Yeah. So they're scaring us. And do they intend to scare us? I don't know, but they're certainly they're certainly not uh, putting fear into our enemies' hearts, uh, whoever our enemies are. Some sometimes I think we're the enemy. Well, you're you're a country guy. You used to be a big city guy. Now you're a country guy. Yeah. Um, it seems like you know what with what with politics the way that it is and technology the way that it is. Uh, you know, there's always been a, a, a reason to see the city as kind of a madhouse. Um, but mm -hmm. something, you know, this is a new kind of, of insanity that you see in, in urban life today. Um, how do you like it out there in, uh, in the deep country? Uh, you think more people well, are going to follow you? So I, I grew up in a town of 500 people, um, really outside the orbit of uh, the Twin Cities in Minnesota, Minneapolis, St. Paul. A true rural agricultural dairy farm uh, county that you know had been settled by Swedes and Norwegians and uh, hadn't changed a hell of a lot. You know, you still saw Model Ts or old tractors, you know, in people's yards when I was a kid. Um, you could see when agriculture had mechanized out in the field. Um, that was deep country. Now. Nowhere is really deep country in America. I, I, I mean, uh, Livingston, Montana, a town of 7,000 where I live, you know, has high speed Internet. It has every, um, you know, every luxury and every frill that any other place has. But what it still has that I think the cities don't is a very um, intact social contract at, the, at a low level, at a street level, you know, people being polite to each other, opening doors for each other, um, waving. You know, when you're on the when you're on the dirt road out in Montana, and you pass another car, you always lift your hand. Uh, you acknowledge everybody. Um, if you know them, you pass a word with them. Uh, and there's still that feeling of uh, of cohesion. When I go to the city, uh, and I drive a lot, when I go to the city. The big city, something on, you know, Portland or big New York City, Los Angeles or so on. I'm starting to get a feeling of mayhem, um, especially in New York, which I go to about every six weeks. Uh, it, it, it does seem to be markedly disintegrating. Uh, Just what's going on with immigration and that hotel? I mean, it's craziness. Well, the Roosevelt Hotel, yeah. you know, when I, when I go there, I have to stay usually for business in midtown Manhattan, a couple blocks away from this hotel that has been used to house immigrants. And, and, and to me, it's, it's heartbreaking. Uh, you know, I see 12-year-old girls sitting out on the curb without a friend in sight in this crowd in the middle of the night. You Never know, a good sign. Wondering, yeah, wondering where their family is. I see 
guys kind of cruising among the crowd who look like they're maybe the captain of things, the emerging captain of things, um, uh, maybe in not a good way. Uh, the, the drugs in Las Vegas, where I spend the winter uh, on the street, are somehow um, rendering people incoherent in ways I've never seen. Uh, I remember last winter walking to a certain corner in downtown Las Vegas, and there were seven people who didn't appear to know each other, who were all doing some kind of strange, slow motion, tai chi and moaning. And there, it just seemed like what had happened is some new batch had landed and they were all having similar side effects. And that's new. I mean, I'm a guy who travels, gets around and is curious and takes walks every day, drives, um, no matter where I am, who goes down the alley rather than the main street, because I always want to see around the edges of things. And if you look around the corners and behind the facades and around the edges right now in America, in American cities and in American small towns, you see uh, people in dire straits in a way that's new in my experience. I mean, uh, I don't really remember, I, though I visited New York in the 70s, I remember it as kind of a wash of funkiness, you know, taxi driver kind of thing. But now it's more segmented. You go around, you know, around behind something and you suddenly find a pod of misery. Um, Bozeman, Montana, uh, a city that's growing and uh, pretty prosperous right now because of, you know, tech companies moving in and California uh, emigres. Uh, has huge blocks hidden by uh, big box stores where people just live in these squalid encampments uh, using sort of broken down trailers and cars that don't even have, you know, don't look like they run. They're now functioning as kind of, uh, you know, rooms. But they probably have smartphones, right? They have <clears throat> smartphones. Um, and, you know, I see people living in their cars and, you know, watching TV, as it were, on their phone. Yeah. Um, in a weird way, the phone has rendered homelessness at least more diverting in some horrible, superficial way. The real digital nomads. I mean, how much of this sort of just like, it's almost a fungal spread of this kind of weird dissociated insanity has to do with technology? Well, so I have this theory that this is the age of the rectangle, okay? Um, the screen, the little object that creates a stage that in a way blocks out reality or substitutes for it. And as we pay more attention to it, the vitality of everything that isn't it seems to be draining. In other words, uh, for all the activity in the electronic world, there seems to be uh, vitiation, <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce that word, right. uh, 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 of energy in the outside world. It's, uh, I, it's funny, a couple of years ago, I was mm, writing about UFOs and so on for some reason, and I saw that UFO sightings in America had gone down precipitously um, in the last few years, and people attributed it to people looking at their phones, that, you know, there were the sky was getting less clicks than ever. The sky had less eyeballs on it than ever. And that's why people weren't seeing, you know, flying saucers anymore. Is that why the government really wants to goose, get people to look, look up again? See, see whatever well, maybe they it's say a, Maybe it's a civil there. defense plan. They, they, they <laughs> want us all to be looking at the skies in case a hypersonic missile goes over. I don't know. Or I don't know, some kind of balloon yeah, that's not supposed to be there. I mean, that was amazing. That happened in Montana. Um, and I was proud of Montana when they spotted these people in Billings spotted the, the Chinese spy balloon because I thought, at least we still look up in big sky country. I mean, it's our yeah. it's our premier natural phenomena, the big sky. And so we pay attention to it and we caught this balloon, but it had traveled all the way down through Canada and, you know, 
over Alaska. Only in Montana do we still uh, pay attention, I guess. Um, but no, I get, I get the sense that all the, the intensity of our uh, gaze at screens somehow causes a um, power in everything else. Um, our lived environment is getting uglier, um, dirtier, uh, just sort of less and less compelling as the intense nodes of intention in our, of attention that are our phones get more amusing. Well, that brings us to County Highway. This is, it says America's only newspaper, America's yeah. last newspaper. Uh, this is your creation. It's an actual newspaper. Uh, I think it's six times a year. Six times no a year. No internet. No, uh, you can't find a digital version. It's not even a PDF. Uh, Why did you do it? So it, it's not my sole invention. It's a, a partnership between me and a guy named David Samuels. Um, and uh, the thought was, and it was a couple of years ago that it occurred to us, that there would soon be a market for a publication that not only didn't exist on the internet, but didn't give you the sort of anxiety that reading the internet causes. Um, uh, you know, when you read your phone, you're being tracked, you're being monitored, you know, you may actually be being watched. Um, certainly the articles that you click on are being registered somewhere. And, and, we could see that sort of surveillance state media um, uh, growing and intensifying. And we thought, what if we could counter this with a, a 19th century style American newspaper, the kind of thing that comes from the Mark Twain era. And uh, so, so that was the anti-technology idea there, that somehow the, the buzzing um, electronic reading experience had become alienating in some way or, or, or even ominous. But the, the editorial idea was that we were going to cover America like it was a small town. We were going to invert the New Yorker map of the, uh, of the country in which the New York stands in the foreground with its skyscrapers and the rest of the country is this sort of uh, flat blur of just a tiny crust at the horizon. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And then there's a little, uh, you know, a little skyscraper representing Los Angeles way out to the edge of the Pacific Ocean. So we decided that we would treat New York and Los Angeles as though they were just towns among many and focus on things like the Kansas wheat harvest, um, uh, an animal attack in uh, Minnesota or Iowa, uh, uh, everything that involves sort of uh, up close local life that doesn't get covered. Um, and it wasn't uh, a Garrison Keillor idea, oh, let's do cutesy Americana. It was just the idea, the notion that there are all these stories that because they're ignored, have become almost exotic. Um, there's life out there. And the condescension toward middle America had reached, uh, had, had reached almost absurd levels. You know, if you, if you were to believe the New York press, all that goes on in the middle of the country are Ku Klux Klan, Klan rallies and, you know, uh, I don't know, methamphetamine parties or something, uh, that there is no longer a, a, a a thriving, turbulent, dynamic society in the middle of the country, which there is. Um, so, so we decided to pay attention to it. And, uh, you know, we've got stories in the current issue about everything from this, this UFO whistleblower, Dave Grush, who lives out in Colorado, um, to a mule festival in Bishop, California that happens annually where, where, where mule aficionados come from around the country to a Taylor Swift concert, and, uh, which is written about at great length, 10,000 words in, uh, in Washington state. Um, we're, ju we're just kind of hoping that the intense monocultural focus on uh, the big city has gotten boring for people. 
let's talk about this UFO whistleblower. I mean, there's so much content swarming out there. It, it wasn't that long ago um, <clears throat> when, uh, when it was the freaks who wanted to believe in the yeah. UFOs. And now it's the government that wants you to believe in the UFOs. Um, it's very difficult for even someone, you know, whose job it is to kind of track this stuff, to separate out, to come up with any kind of coherent mental map to make sense of what's real and what's not. Um, what's your experience been with this whistleblower guy? And I don't know, what, what advice can you give to Americans trying to, trying to dare to understand what's happening? So I spent 10 hours with him in Colorado, um, deep in conversation, met his wife, um, found him very compelling, impressive, intelligent. Uh, he's a 36-year-old guy who has served at the highest levels of military intelligence, um, briefed presidents. He's testified before Congress. And his story is that he did a uh, in interdepartmental investigation of the UFO phenomena. Because he had so many clearances, he was able to go here and there throughout the government, throughout the military, throughout the intelligence world, and find out what was going on in the, and pull all these compartments together and file a report. And uh, he did that, and his conclusion was uh, that we had all these craft hidden away, that, that there's been a craft retrieval program that's gone on, you know, since actually the 1930s, um, that there are even bodies that have been recovered, um, that there may be some forms of agreement between our government and, and, and these other non-human intelligences, NHIs, that's the new word. And uh, so he told me this whole story, a lot of it uh, off the record. Um, and uh, I came away feeling like somebody had thrown a sort of mind grenade into my skull because it's a reality melting prospect that there are other forms of life, some of them supposedly interdimensional, non-corporeal, a lot more like spirits maybe than, than E.T., um, that we've known about this, that we've put our sort of best defense contractors on the problem of um, exploiting uh, the technology and possibilities that have been introduced by their presence. Um, and there's a promise that we'll get to know more. I mean, there always is with UFOs. We are always a year away from the big reveal. But he assured me that that reveal is uh, kind of got a schedule now. And in the next year will be uh, accelerated in a way that the whole world will find astonishing. So what do I think of it all? Well, because I can't see any evidence of it, except in his narration of the thing and, and, and you know, uh, his assurances that various things exist. Uh, I, I, I can't, you know, I, I can't handicap the likelihood that we're all going to be convinced of this. But I will tell you that the information operation, whether or not it's backed by real uh, craft and so on, is serious very serious and it's going to grow more intense um and uh you know you've already seen steven spielberg has a a, a ufo documentary uh, i think on netflix um uh i think there's uh, another series being uh contemplated or in production about some of the first abduct abductees uh and so they're going to roll this out and, and whatever the truth is, and whatever the actual uh, nature of the, uh, of the phenomena, you're gonna have to deal with it. You're gonna be asked to believe, and you're gonna be asked to believe by our authorities. You know, uh, they, 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 they act as though they're all in conflict. Like there are, some, there, there are some parties that want to get out the truth and there are others that are stopping them. And, and that drama, adds interest, but my sense of it is that there's kind of a consensus at some level about rolling out more of this. Uh, and the theater 
is a little distracting. The powers that be have decided we should know more. Um, what if it's all a fairy tale? What if it's the, you know, what if this is the first, you know, government issued fairy tale? Uh, I mean, it wouldn't be the first, but the biggest. Um, that has strange implications. It means that our very belief systems about ourselves, our past, and our universe are being um, re-engineered at the highest level. And uh, that, you know, you thought, if you, want to, if you want to be conspiratorial, paranoid, and skeptical about this whole thing, you, will, you would conclude that a substitute religion is being prepared for mankind. Or, and even a substitute science, because uh, I happen to know that what, what is set to come out involves, you know, things like the genetic... Um, the genetic manipulation of the human being through time and so on. I mean, really weird stuff. You're sitting there <clears throat> with this uh, uh, grown adult male. Yeah. Uh, he's married. Um, from what you're telling me, it sounds like he didn't have, you know, like boxes of moldering files and like old pieces of pizza hanging off of his desk. Or no, anything. he's not Matthew McConaughey or right. true detective, you know, yeah. smoking and sweating. And, you know, you've got to understand. No, this is a very poised six foot five, six foot six, uh, uh, Air Force veteran, um, uh, actually with a gun on his hip underneath his, uh, underneath his shirt. He, um, he's had problems. He, he's uh, had people harass him and so on. Uh, he, he's got security concerns. Um, Did he at any point unzip his skin suit and reveal a, a lizard underneath? No, I mean, Dave Grush is a kid. It just kid. sounds very calm discussing things that many people would associate with the complete meltdown of civilization as we know it. He's a guy from Pittsburgh, a working class guy from Pittsburgh whose dad was a car dealer, who, um, whose family went bankrupt a few times um, and got a scholarship or actually used uh, military um, you know, benefits to go to the University of Pittsburgh and uh, studied physics, joined the Air Force, fought in Afghanistan, uh, rose to various positions of uh, authority in these satellite intelligence services, and then did this investigation, left the government, and made it his mission to inform the world of what's really going on. Um, and, and, and I had a pretty ironclad agree agreement with him not to talk about the things that he was not yet cleared to talk about, but he seemed normal in every way. I mean, hyper-normal would be almost the word. Uh, uh, he, he was like, it was like talking to the Hardy Boys, you know, uh, the all-American boy, the Wheaties box guy. Uh, he, he was the opposite of some kind of, you know, obsessive, uh, skin-scratching nerd who, you know, had, had seen the light. He was yeah. just telling me this as though he'd been out in the field and seen a big deer and said, there's some big deer out there, you know, except well, here's they're the, aliens. Yeah, here's the, the, the funny thing to me about this is uh, who would not be surprised by the news that interdimensional beings, some of whom might not have our best interests in mind, have visited us and uh, maybe extracted certain kinds of agreements or payments or whatever. Uh, ancient Egyptians would probably not have been shocked to hear that that, that might be true. Um, you know, certainly early Christians would not be shocked by the idea that uh, the interdimensional beings with perhaps malign intent were among us, uh, even some Christians to this very day. Um, and probably, you know, a host of other uh, civilizations uh, also have their own sort of myths and legends about these kinds of well, beings. So, so how much of breaking news is this really? I like to visit the Hopi Reservation in Arizona uh, maybe once or twice a year. Um, and uh, the, the Hopi, people might remember, have a religion that involves these Kachina figures, uh, figures that represent um, otherworldly gods, demons, and so on. And, and uh, when the people wear these costumes, they sort of are transformed into these 
figures which come from the sky, according to their legend, or come from this, th these mountains near the reservation. And uh, I don't think they'd be surprised at all. They'd find it absolute confirmation. Um, I think what they're surprised by on the Hopi reservation are all the false gods of the modern world. You know, um, it, so uh, it's not just sort of indigenous people or ancient people like the Egyptians and so on. It's pretty much everyone except modern America who uh, would not be surprised if there are beings of another kind. I mean, you got, you know, you've got this sort of intellect, the intellectual leading light of the UFO movement is a French uh, scientist named Jacques Vallée, who's, who, Vallée, who, who's written uh, books about the relationship between the fairy religions of Northern Europe and the UFO phenomena. Um, and, uh, you know, he's basically saying gremlins and trolls and, uh, you know, gray aliens seem to come from the same source. Um, whether that source is the human mind, another dimension, or another planet, he, he fudges. Um, but uh, in a weird way, the UFO thing is a return to a more primitive understanding of our place among a host of beings. I mean, we, this, uh, this whole idea that, that people are alone on this planet and in this universe, the only intelligence is a very new one. I, I mean, I, I defy you to find it in ancient literature. It's not, you know, there are gods in the Iliad. There every scripture worth its salt that, over a certain age. Um, it's really only us in the maybe last couple of centuries that think we're alone. Well, and just this, this very old wisdom that people are incredibly malleable and, and really susceptible to influence, whether it's from spectral forces or, or from something more quotidian. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, about Blood Will Out, yeah. uh, which I guess are you, uh, is this going into an adaptation of some kind? This is your most recent book? Oh, it's, it's been, Blood Will Out, which was published in 2014, has been the most developed and not made television show movie of all time. I mean, at any, at any one point, there's somebody who's, you know, got it under option or wants to make a miniseries or make a movie or you something. You get like a little award, like a golden pitchfork or something for like development hell, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, and, and, and it's the greatest story ever. It's, it's the story of my real life friendship with this uh, con man a con man who thought, uh, well, who pretended to be a Rockefeller and who I thought was an actual Rockefeller. He was based in New York City at first and uh, turns out to have been a serial killer, basically. Um, maybe not quite a serial killer, but he killed two people in cold blood, um, cut one of them up, buried him in his yard. He's, he, he, he's certainly what they used to call the thrill killer, kind of a Nietzschean person who, who decided to kill to show his strength and moral superior or right. amoral. I'm the main character and here's how. I'm yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So anyway, um, you know, uh, I, I think I know where you're going with this. Uh, this guy who was named Christian Gerhardt's writer, uh, but pretended to be Clark Rockefeller, was as close to a demonic being as I've ever encountered. And as I e examined him, once he, once he came out, once he was caught for these murders and then tried, and I went forensically back through our relationship and back through his life, um, studying him, trying to figure out who he was, why I'd believed him, how he appealed to people, how he pulled off the con. I probably couldn't have come up with a better thesis and then this guy is possessed, you know, possessed maybe by emptiness, maybe not by an affirmative spirit of evil, but by an absolute vacuum of good. Um, and so when, when you when you spend your time studying a character like that, uh, the notion that there are um, beings that can possess the human, evil, evil forces and so on, gets a lot more uh, credible. Um, the psychological model of evil breaks down. 
you find out, you know, when I would give readings from this book, people would say to me, what do you think happened to him when he was a kid uh, that, that caused him to become this cold-blooded killer who could cut people up, bury them in the ground, and then throw a party on the mound, which he did. Um, and I said, nothing happened to him when he was a kid. You know what he did as a kid? He used to uh, blow pepper into people, other kids' eyes for fun. He used to go around the town where he lived and switch out the road signs so people would get lost uh, trying to find the next town. He was always that way. He was born that way. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible the story about the signs that what I think is really separates this book from whatever the genre is of, of like true crime or whatever is uh, the way that you wrestle with how easily you were deceived and how the, that kind of relationship between the demonic and the deceptive is yeah. so powerful even when you know it's not like you're you feel the spirals developing in your eyes and you feel yourself being sort of overpowered but it can really be insidious and just kind of pull you in and you're not even realizing what's going on until it is maybe too late well you know i mean silence of the lambs i i never thought was a documentary until i met this guy um i remember after he was convicted of murder and i went to see him in uh the downtown la men's lockup um, I, I'd known him as Clark Rockefeller. Now he'd been tried for murder, found guilty. We knew that everything he did was a fraud. And he comes in to the other side of this, you know, plastic window. And I'm going to see him for the first time, knowing who he really is. Having last seen him literally in like a New York or a, a Boston club room. This is a big movie scene. Yeah. It's like the big moment. Exactly. And he comes up and he's got, you know, his prison gown on his orange uh, jumpsuit or whatever it was and he sits down on the other side of this plastic window and we both pick up these heavy phones and the meeting is timed so the phones are on for exactly 30 minutes and when he picks up his and I pick up mine there's still not a connection so we're just staring at each other through this glass and he, you know he's a little mousy looking guy let's put it that way uh, squinty eyes um, not particularly friendly looking. And the minute the phone comes on, he says, hello, Walter, how are your children? Great. And I was just, wow, you know, uh, is he imitating evil or is he, has he been watching movies? Uh, could he be any scarier? Um, and, uh, I think that in that moment and, in moments I, I, I spent interacting with them afterwards, I moved to a whole new thesis about human evil, which is that it, it is an affirmative thing. It's not just the lack of goodness. There are people who, beings, who actually uh, want to frighten, want to control, um, have inverted every ethic and moral principle such that they have taken on this kind of power. and. To describe it as demonic is probably not inaccurate. And, and finally, talking to Dave Grush about uh, NHIs, he really affirmed to me that at least in many cases, they seem to resemble psychic beings, ghosts, you know, interdimensional entities more than they do, you know, uh, tall, thin, big-eyed, bug-like creatures. Um, that was a weird thought. Yeah. Well, this is, I mean, we have an elite that will not take seriously and will not talk publicly about satanic anything, demonic anything. It doesn't exist. And then you look at what's going on in the countryside and what's going on with ordinary people. I mean, people can't get enough of this content, whether they're mystified by it, horrified by it. The, the, the presence of evil in American life is just really a resonant topic. And it's just the gulf between those in charge and those who are ruled on this, on this topic. It seems so vast. So another funny story about Clark Rockefeller. Um, one of the friends of one of his victims had grown up to become a space, a, a, a space command officer. 
before Army Space Command, before there was Space Force. And I took him out to dinner. Uh, he, he testified at the trial about his friend who'd been killed. Um, the friend was a, uh, a JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratory Explorer Scout. And, you know, the friend had died and, he, and this guy had gone on and sort of lived the Star Trek life, become a, an officer. Maybe he was a colonel in the Army's space program. And I said, so what do you think of Clark Rockefeller? What do you think of this killer? Um, the guy had had a couple of drinks and he said, everything that needs to be explained can be explained in a Star Trek episode somewhere. And this guy uh, resembles uh, Jack the Ripper character in a Star Trek episode, who is a sort of formation of energy that travels through the universe and coalesces in various, you know, evil characters throughout history. And then uh, after he's committed his murder, he disperses again, only to incarnate somewhere else. And this was a scientist, a military man, and his best explanation for the nature of this murderer was that he was some incorporeal, incorporeal uh, demonic entity who had taken physical form. Um, and uh, so uh, even among even among elite thinkers, uh, people of power, the the notion that we're dealing with something other than, you know, psychological dysfunction uh, exists. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, this kind of theme, th thematic stuff pops up in Twin Peaks, too, of course. With right. Like the, the Air Force guy who's sort of one of the heroes and has, like, the secret in info. Uh, yeah, I don't think this stuff is going away uh, anytime soon. So, so how do you keep a smile on your face? Well, you keep a smile on your face by aligning yourself with the other powers. Um, you know, uh, I remember when The Exorcist was a big movie and I was a child. Um, uh, I was afraid to watch it. And there were all these stories of people fainting and, you know, becoming possessed themselves and so on. And... Uh, I talked to a priest who lived in our small town and he said, well, you know, uh, you just have, you just have to pray. You just have to be a good person. You have nothing to fear from these, from these forces. Um, and, uh, I, I, I think that's still true today. Evil exists in the world. We've been seeing it everywhere this week. We're seeing it on our phones. We're seeing a kind of evil being played out, you know, in the, in the Middle East that is, medieval at best and how do we keep a smile on our face well by clinging to the better angels um in a weird way if you know evil exists it gives you a it gives you a motive to really seek out the protection uh, of the good and of the best and and to cling to uh to cling to the highest principles you can find. Um, I, don't, I don't think that just living a completely secular life, uh, uh, a completely sort of scientific and, uh, oh, I don't know, rationalist, positive, uh, positivist life is, is an option anymore for us. I mean, it may be for some people, but the idea that we're just in some kind of terrible social psychology experiment in which, you know, some people act out and other people are, you know, are more functional doesn't seem to describe the situation anymore. I, I, I think that the, the dark and light battle is starting to be, is starting to be very easily perceived. Um, and, and it requires you to line up. And it seems like it's just going to continue to penetrate the political conversation. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's always rough to see political polarization set in in an unproductive way. There are so many scripts that people can run where it's just finger pointing and scapegoating and nothing ever really changes. Uh, but when you start to recognize, you know, I think you're right. You know, if you do understand that evil is a presence in the world, it does give you a kind of leg up. It does give you a sort of 
a way of of of, uh, of maintaining a certain kind of integrity or or, or right. alertness. Uh, you're doing America this week with uh, with Taibi. Yeah. Uh, do you feel like um, y- you're out there sort of making a dent in the political situation? Is that possible? Well, um, Matt and I really specialize in uh, narrating the rise of this surveillance, censorship, and control state, and in, in, in criticizing its excesses, and in issuing warnings uh, uh, about its possibilities, its, its terrible possibilities. In, in the year and, a, year and a quarter we've been doing the podcast, I think I've been able to watch an almost uh, unbroken escalation of uh, interventions by the state, by corporate power, and by uh, our sort of international uh, organizations, all with the same, uh, all with the same intention to to direct, engineer, and um, uh, manipulate the minds of Americans and Europeans and so on in ways that serve the interests of big power. And it's gotten worse and worse. There have been some little victories, uh, court cases and so on, the dismantling of the sort of Twitter intelligence agency axis. axis. Uh, But the trend has been bad. Um, So if we're making any progress, it's not with policymakers, though there have been some hearings and so on, and, and some raised consciousness among politicians about the, the, the censorship uh, complex. complex. Um, but it's a little bit just like narrating a, a ball game, you know, and we're losing so far. Um, you know, Europe is passing laws of absolute, you know, mind-bending Orwellian uh, portent. You know, um, the Digital Services Act is the one that they have on the plate now. And that's coming to America. You know, um, your ability to speak, be heard, um, and uh, criticize prevailing narratives is going to diminish. And with war on the horizon, it's going to maybe diminish radically and quickly. Um, And talking about it, observing it, and criticizing it may slow the process down. I'm not sure. Uh, Maybe it's just a way of putting a bookmark in where we were so that we can get back to it later after after it fails, because it's going to fail. I mean, the, the the attempt to the attempt to control, manicure, and guide the free expression of hundreds of millions of people is is the ultimate quixotic enterprise. It can't work. It just not over any period, but it's it's going to be attempted. Well, I can't let you go uh, in this vein, at least without talking about Donald Trump. Uh, yeah. You're you're a writer. You understand plot. You understand character. What's what's the Trump story going to look like for the next? Uh, I don't know. However long it is until we get to the election. The next, however long it is to get yeah. to the election. Then, yeah. Right. Yeah. What is it? Now? <laughs> Let's see. It's October. That's exactly one year from now. Um, it's a year that I think no one looks forward to. Um, What's going to happen with Donald Trump? Well, he seems to be a sacrificial figure in some ways. I mean, uh, you know, is he Gulliver? Is he tied down by the Lilliputians? Is he the the sort of father figure in Totem and Taboo by Freud, who who the people you know murder and then consume for some kind of cathartic uh, release? You know, is he the Gerard, the scapegoat from Rene Gerard? Um, are we going to see him absolutely, um, how can I put it, humiliated as a way for us to get closure on something or to experience some kind of psychic re- resolution? Or is he going to be a successful politician who overcomes all odds, the hero, you know, against who surmounts every obstacle and every antagonist. He's new at this politics thing. He's very new at this, and that's and that's his uh, 
you know, that's his edge because ever since I've been covering him, his willingness to say things that others don't say, to make moves, you know, it, 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 if you're looking at game theory, it's very hard to counter Donald Trump's moves in advance because you just don't know what they're going to be. This uh, is one of my favorite little stories about him is he was talking about one of his negotiations or calls with Vladimir Putin. And he said, oh, you know, Vlad, if you don't do what I what I tell you to do, uh, I, I'm going to nuke your beautiful churches in Moscow. And right. And he said and he believed me. And then he said, you know, being Trump. Well, he only believed me 10%, but 10% is all you need. Madman theory, I think that's called, uh, you know, in defense circles, uh, showing you're willing to, to do the unthinkable as a way of, you know, disciplining the other's reaction. But so I think obviously the hope of his supporters is that it will be this triumph against all odds. The tribune of the people rises up against the elite. They do everything to stop him, all these judges, all these lawyers, all these intelligence services. And he comes in, you know, like Caesar, not like Caesar in the sense that he wants to rule forever. I think that's all baloney. The idea of Trump as dictator. He was already president once. He wasn't dictator that time. He's going to be dictator this time. Uh, uh, but, but the idea that the triumphant uh, tribune of the people is going to overcome all these uh, pointy-headed adversaries is, I think, a low-odds proposition, frankly. I, I, I just don't think they're going to let the guy have that narrative. Um, you know, I, and, and polls would suggest that if it were up to the people, he might be able to. But there were so many institutions between him and the presidency. Uh, I, I just don't know how he does it. So I think it's more likely he ends up a martyr. Well, it's still the greatest show on earth. Uh, we'll be we'll be watching, but we'll make time to keep track of all of your many, many endeavors, Walter Kern. That's literally all the time we've got today. So uh, all of you out there, check out Kern's books. Go to CountyHighway.com. Learn more about America's only newspaper. Until next time, I am James Polis. This is Zero Hour, and may God have mercy on us all.